Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The setting for today's book is this place called the Nettleton State Village for Feeble-Minded Women of Childbearing Age. It's an asylum to hold so-called unfit women so they don't mingle with the rest of the population and procreate. To be clear, the book is fiction, but is based on a very real place, based on very real policies, and inspired by very real people. The book is called The Foundling, and the author, Anne Leary, her grandmother actually used to work at a place like this. And in this interview with Here and Now's Robin Young, she talked about the connection between eugenics and abortion and the long history of control over women's bodies. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. Writer Anne Leary likes netty topics. Her 2013 book, The Good House, centered on alcoholism. She's open about her own. Her 2013 New York Times Modern Love column is about the ups and downs of her longtime marriage to that other Leary, actor Dennis Leary. And now comes her new novel, The Foundling, a great read, and also timely, as it's about who controls women's bodies, a question once again in the headlines. The Foundling takes on the embrace in the early 1900s of eugenics, the ugly theory that certain people were unfit to have children. Many know it was directed at black people or people with disabilities. But Anne reminds us it targeted single white women who were considered promiscuous or married white women whose husbands wanted to ditch them. And many know, but it's still shocking to be reminded, that an outspoken proponent of eugenics was Margaret Sanger, the iconic feminist who founded the birth control movement, which she said was to liberate women. The book, again, is The Foundling, and Anne Leary joins us. Hi. Hello, Robin, and thank you so much for having me on. Boy, timely, as I said. And this came about because I understand you were researching your mom's mom, your grandma. You didn't know a lot about her. You discovered she was a secretary in one of these institutions? Yes, I was doing ancestry research. All I wanted to know was how my maternal grandmother became an orphan. I still don't know the answer to that. Mm. The only record I could find of her was in a 1930 census record. She was working as a stenographer at a place, a large institution in central Pennsylvania called the Laurelton State Village for Feeble-Minded Women of Childbearing Age. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of tripped straight off the tongue Mm. there for you. It's shocking. Just the title of the place is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. The most offensive part was the of childbearing age part because where my grandmother worked was actually a eugenics asylum. It was one of many in this country in the early 20th century. Well, and what did you find out about who these women really were? Yes, some had mental issues, but mm-hmm. who were these women? Many of them uh, were what they would call morally defective. They, 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 they used terms for the audience They're very offensive by today's standards, but Mm -hmm. to be authentic, I did use them in my book, and I'm going to use them in this interview. Um, Why a woman would end up at a place like this, she might have been arrested for drinking, which was illegal. She might have actually been a prostitute. She might have been 12 years old and accused her uncle of touching her inappropriately, and he said she was slow in the head. You didn't need to be sent to court. You didn't go to court. Basically, a man in your community or a woman, a social worker, could label you as feeble-minded. And if you were 
were 12 and you were sent to such a place, you would not be released until you reached menopause. You were sent there not for training or, uh, you know, therapeutic reasons. You were sent there so you would not be able to have children. And let's face it, it was a labor camp. It was, yes. The women who worked there, they did all the work of the asylum from raising the crops, handling the livestock that fed and had produced the dairy for the asylum and asylums nearby. It was a very successful, a large institution. Some of the women at this asylum and other asylums like it were sent off to work in local homes as servants and in industries such as mills. Their salaries were not paid to the women. They were paid to the asylum because the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania was a government asylum believed that, as all states did, that um, inmates owed the Commonwealth for the expense of keeping them against their will (laughs) in these places. Well, and to really remind people, they weren't what we would consider somebody who was emotionally or mentally impaired. The majority. There were a small percentage in the institution where my grandmother worked who were actually in the um, category which they called then idiots, which would be the lowest IQ. There was about 10%. But the rest of the women were what they called higher-functioning One of the doctors who worked at the institution where my grandmother worked wrote a brochure about recognizing feeble-mindedness in women. And one of the many traits was actively seeking sex, also boisterousness, drunkenness, um, basically me in college (laughs) and everyone I knew. Well, and then you quote Margaret Sanger, every feeble-minded girl or woman of the hereditary type, especially of the moron class, should be segregated during the reproductive period, otherwise she's almost certain to bear imbecile children who are in turn just as certain to breed other defectives. This was about cleansing, you know, the race. But you say she wasn't the only one. I mean, Winston Churchill believed in this. Many Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. Virginia Woolf, H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, I could, every major American industrialist believed in this. It was not a secret hate group. It was embraced, and it was actually a household word. My grandmother wouldn't have gone into this not knowing what the place was. It was not a secret. Well, I'm wondering, is that part of why you wrote this? Again, the book is The Foundling. It centers around Mary Engel, a stand-in for your grandma. Right. She was raised in a Catholic orphanage, gets what she thinks is a dream job. Secretary to the head of the Nettleton State Village for Feeble-Minded Women of Childbearing <laughs> Age, a stand-in for Laurelton, the real one. Right. Uh, the head is Agnes Vogel, your character. And Mary meets a childhood friend who's now an inmate at this village who doesn't belong there, a stand-in for all the women mm. who didn't belong there. Is that part of why you wrote this, to try to figure out how did this happen? How could my grandmother have worked there? How could they have believed this? Yes, well, that's part of it. But I actually am glad you mentioned um, Dr. Vogel because there were three types of women that I was interested in. One was, of course, my grandmother, who somebody who bought into the system. But I was most intrigued by Dr. Vogel, who's based on the real doctor who ran the asylum where my grandmother worked. Her oh. name was Dr. Mary Wolf. She received a medical degree in 1899 when few women went to college. And when I first discovered her, and when I didn't know a lot about this place, I was in awe, and I I was very impressed. She was a suffragist. She was helping all these vulnerable women. And then I delved a little deeper, and I found out more about what eugenics was, what this asylum was, and also about the actual horrible abuses that went on there. But she caught my imagination, and that's when I realized I had a novel. I also read about many of the unfortunate women who were imprisoned there and whose mothers or others tried to get them out through habeas corpus cases and failed to. And I would see them at age 18 in the 1920 census. And then in 1930, they'd be 28. And then Mm. the next 10 years, 38. And it broke my heart. And they kind of formed into this character, Lillian. So there were three characters, but 
I felt like they each represented a woman coming from a different place in a time in our country where, <laughs> when I was writing this, seemed like a dystopian but real past mm -hmm. where the government actually assumed the legal guardianship of women and women had the legal status of children. And in recent weeks, it seems that that actually doesn't seem so so long ago. Well, let's, <laughs> seems... talk, yeah, let's talk about that because it does feel so dystopian. It's kind of a reverse handmaid's tale. Yeah. Instead of being forced to have children, these were women who were forced into incarceration to keep them from having children. And today, with the Supreme Court ruling... It is in the minds of many who are, you know, who supported abortion rights. It is forcing women again to have the children they may not feel capable of having or medically capable or emotionally capable or financially capable of having. But mm -hmm. the thing that's the same is it's the government telling them what to do. Right. It's women not being treated with the same right to their bodily autonomy as men. It's happened in my novel, but it happened in the United States. Right. And it feels very much like The Handmaid's Tale set in the jazz era, but it did really happen. But Anne Leary, do you worry about those on the right who are very much against choice abortion rights, who might be hearing about Margaret Sanger's role in this for the first time? Because they already believe that Birth control is a form of genocide. It's keeping mm -hmm. women from having children. And then they hear that Margaret Sanger also supported eugenics. Um, well, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, I think Margaret Sanger's gotten a bit of a bad rap. Margaret Sanger rolled up her sleeves and got her hands dirty helping very poor women. I think people are being a little harsh when they condemn her when, again, so many people we also admire thought this was a good thing. In fact, positive eugenics is simply encouraging people you know, who can afford children and who are healthy to have more children and people who can afford them and who are, might not be healthy to have less. But America in the early 20th century quickly went to what they called negative eugenics, which is the government determining who can and who cannot have children. And a lot of it had to do with the First World War and the sudden influx of Eastern and Southern Europeans. Mm -hmm. It was a movement very much having to do with race and xenophobia. White people were coming, but they were the wrong white people. I read someplace in one of some article I read, they were they considered people from, say, Italy off-white because they really did believe these certain ethnic groups were inferior. It was yeah. just very troubling to read. However, while I was reading it, there were so many headlines about immigration and about certain ethnic groups that were paralleling what I was researching. So it was quite fascinating. And to this day, every day, there's another headline that is paralleling what happened, what I discovered to write this novel. The novel is The Foundling, um, not to be confused with the British book about right. this thank happening you. in Britain. Look for Anne Leary's The Foundling. And thank you so much. Robin, thank you. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. 
Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.